thank you for the truth that your mercies are more. Our sins truly are many. We confess that truth to you this morning. And Lord, we rejoice in the knowledge that there is forgiveness of sin in Christ and in Christ alone. That should we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, that we would be cleansed of all unrighteousness. I pray for those in our midst this morning who have not come to that place of genuine repentance and belief. Lord, I pray that in hearing this message, in hearing your word, that you would do a work in their hearts, that they would be convicted of sin, and that they would turn away from that sin and put their full faith and trust in Christ. Lord, this requires your work. It's not something that I can force upon them. It's not something that they can even force upon themselves. This is the work of your Spirit. And so we invite your Spirit to be at work in and through us this morning. We want to see the name of Jesus lifted up. We want to see you high and exalted to have a right estimation of who you are, to remember the great works that you've done, to to think about, to embrace and rejoice in your saving grace. May we do all of this to your praise and glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the second chapter in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Now this morning we come to a text that for many of you is, is probably quite familiar. In fact, if you've been around church, if you've been around Bible preaching churches for any length of time, you've probably encountered uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. In fact, if you've been here at NBC uh, longer than a year or two, you've probably heard me preach on Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. This passage is incredibly important as it helps us to understand God's, uh, really our need for salvation and God's grace in providing salvation to us through Jesus Christ. This morning, we're, we're going to narrow our focus down to just three verses. We'll look at uh, verses 1 through 3, but I'd like to read all the way down through verse 10, just so we can see this passage in its context. Follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, the topic of sin has fallen on hard times 
these days. Sin is inherently an, an unpleasant uh, subject to, to discuss. It, it makes people feel uncomfortable. It, it does damage to our often all-too-fragile self-esteem. Uh, people just don't like to think about sin. They don't like to talk about sin. Uh, they especially don't like to think and talk about their own sin. Uh, noting the modern attitude towards sin, theologian Millard Erickson wrote, to speak of humans as sinners is almost like screaming out a profanity or obscenity at a formal, dignified, genteel meeting or even in a church. It's forbidden. This general attitude is almost a new type of legalism, the major prohibition of which is you shall not speak anything negative. Well, any pastor who decides that he's not going to teach or preach on the subject of sin is basically going to have to set aside the Bible and make a living by giving TED Talks. Uh, and that's pretty much what is happening in many churches even this morning. Sin, however, it, it's a major doctrine in the Bible. If you just consider the entirety of the Bible, all 66 books, at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you have the creation account of, of when the world was before sin came into the world. And then if you look at the last two chapters in, in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you have a description of the new heavens and the new earth, which will never be stained by sin. And everything in between covers sin and God's unfolding plan to redeem sinners. If, if you refuse to talk about sin, you, you cannot talk about the Bible. You can't share biblical truth with people. In the passage that's before us this morning, we're immediately confronted with the reality of sin. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If we're going to understand this passage, we must spend time thinking about and dwelling on sin. My hope for us is, is to develop and, and to embrace a biblical understanding of sin. Throughout human history, societies have acknowledged the sinfulness of man. Uh, it was basically a universe, universally accepted truth, especially in Western cultures. Now, all of that changed, though, after the so-called Enlightenment of the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, since that time, people have grown increasingly antagonistic against the reality of sin, especially in Western cultures. In modern thought, uh, man was believed to be inherently good. Uh, sure, nobody's perfect, but generally speaking, modern thinkers believe that man was just good by nature. He was naturally good. Before the Enlightenment, people would, would attribute man's problems to man's sinfulness, but Enlightenment thinkers totally changed that line of thinking. Now, rather than pointing to man's sinfulness, they would say man's problems are, are based upon man's ignorance. And so if you develop education and science and technology, the result should be that man, man's problems will go away and man will be left better off. Then the 20th century came along, completely de debunked that theory. Two world wars, uh, genocide on a level that has never been seen before, biological, chemical, nuclear warfare, a holocaust, unprecedented bloodshed. Advances in education didn't result in the betterment of man. Uh, they resulted in the betterment of man's ability to kill fellow man. Man got better at killing one another. And so great were these advances that for decades uh, we lived under the threat of, of global destruction and human annihilation. We call that the Cold War these days. 
The events of the 20th century strongly and, and convincingly argue against Enlightenment thought that the root of man's problem is ignorance rather than sin. Sadly, but not unexpectedly, things haven't improved a whole lot in the 21st century. Uh, the reality is we still live under that threat of mutual and, and uh, human annihilation. It still exists. We just don't talk about it as much as we did way back in the 1900s, right? As mankind has rejected biblical truth about our origins and, and embraced Darwinian thought and Darwinian evolution, there is now a growing deterministic view of humanity. Uh, rather than believing that man was created by God, uh, contemporary thinkers believe that we are the result of really billions of years of random chance and, and in such we're products of our environment and of, of social upbringing. Such an understanding allows people to conclude that man is, is basically good, or at the very least, man is born neutral. And anything bad that man does is, is really not his fault. Uh, he's simply dancing to his DNA, right? The, the, this line of thinking makes it incredibly difficult to hold people accountable for their actions, regardless of how heinous those actions are, murderers, pedophiles, Thieves, homosexuals, serial adulterers, pathological liars, disobedient children, you name it. They're not the way they are because of depravity within. They're simply a product of their upbringing and of their, chem their body chemistry, such as modern thought. Postmodern and post-postmodern thinkers have, have taken things even a step further uh, in the rejection of objective biblical truth. They would say that everything is relative. Uh, people nowadays don't, well, they say don't judge at all, but they don't judge themselves against an objective standard. Rather, they look around at one another and, and they ju judge each other, judge each other uh, on subjective standards. This way of thinking allows a person to uh, completely reject God and then still have the expectation that upon their death, God will open wide the gates of heaven uh, simply because they weren't as bad as the people around them. Right? They, they, they cry out, I'm no Hitler, right? so let me into heaven. Sure, I, I cheated on my taxes. Yes, I lusted after my neighbor's wife. Okay, I, I gossiped about just about everybody, including the people that I would call my friends. Yes, I heard the gospel and I completely rejected it, but I didn't commit mass genocide. Can I come in? For, for the postmodern thinker, truth and morals uh, are, are flexible. They're situationally dependent. You have your truth, and, and I have my truth. And even if they completely contradict each other, we're both still right. After all, who, who am I to tell you that your truth is wrong? Such as modern and postmodern thought. It's the world's view of sin these days, or refusal to view sin over the past few centuries. Now let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let's see what God has revealed to us on the subject of sin. Remember that right from the beginning of our passage, we're confronted with the subject and the reality of sin. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be turning some pages this morning. And uh, I'm going to be spitting out some Bible references, and I just encourage you, if you don't catch exactly 
what the passage says. Make sure you catch the address so you know how to find it. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, let's just look at verse 4 there. And this is, uh, in this verse we find what's possibly the shortest and most straightforward biblical definition of sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You can write that down. Sin is lawlessness. What John's conveying here, he's not simply saying that uh, disobeying God's law is, is uh, sin, which it is, but the idea that he's trying to convey is that this is the ultimate rebellion against God. It conveys the idea of living one's life as if there was no law. It's putting oneself in charge of everything. It's, it's setting God aside and, and making oneself one's own God. And this is sin. The Apostle James affirms this truth in James 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. As we consider these first three uh, verses in Ephesians 2, we'll see the severity of sin, we'll see the pervasiveness of sin, and the u- universality of sin. These truths really blend in with one another, but we're going to take our time and, and look at them in the order that Paul presents them to the Ephesians. First, let's look at the severity of sin. Now, that can be point number one in your outlines if you're a note taker, the severity of sin. Now, after praying that the Ephesians would know the hope to which they had been called, uh, the riches of their inheritance, and the immeasurable power of God as demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We can see the severity of sin as we consider the consequences of sin. The Bible is filled with examples of of people who have disobeyed God's commandments and then lengthy narratives of of the consequences of that sin. Uh, David and Bathsheba really come to mind immediately when we think about that. Perhaps there's no narrative that's clearer than, than that of Adam and Eve. Now turn with me in your Bibles all the way back to the beginning, back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, we have a record of, of the creation account, how God created the world and everything in it. Look down to the end of that chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. After six days of creating, God took a step back and looked at his workmanship and concluded, it is very good. Now look down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the, in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Uh, note the intimacy that existed between God and man at this time, between the Creator and the created. God created man and woman in His image, and God said of his creation that it was very good. And he took the man and he put him in this incredibly fruitful garden. And he told him, eat as much as you want, except for this one tree. 
Don't eat of that. And, and by the way, I want you to have dominion over all the animals. You're in charge. Later on in Genesis 3.8, we read that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God communed with his creation. God spoke directly to his creatures. Think about the measure of grace that God gave to Adam and Eve by setting up those boundaries around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they didn't have to try to figure out which, which fruits they could eat and which fruits they couldn't eat. No, God set parameters in place for them by his grace. It's a demonstration of his love for them. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 3 and see what happened. You already heard this passage in our scriptural call to worship. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Let's look at it again. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and, and made themselves loincloths. The serpent mentioned in this passage is none other than Satan himself, uh, who took on the form of a snake. Uh, the Bible doesn't provide a great amount of detail with regard to the fall of Satan, uh, but from passages like Ezekiel 28, from Isaiah 14, we, we have this sense, uh, I think those chapters are about the fall of Satan, and we, we have this sense that Satan was an angel, and he was in the presence of God, and then he rebelled against God, and he fell from grace, he became God's unrighteous adversary. That happened sometime between Genesis 1.31, which we looked at, when God looked at his creation and said it is very good, and then Genesis 3 here, where we see the serpent deceiving the woman. We don't have time to do an exhaustive study on all that the Bible says about sin, but I do want you to understand some key points about what the Bible teaches on this subject. First, we can see the severity of sin and the, the distortion of the creature-creation relationship and the resulting separation between God and man. Rather than joyfully communing with God immediately after eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the man and the woman, they hid themselves from God. They heard God's presence in the garden and they hid. At the end of Genesis 3, we're told that God drove out the man from the garden. Sin corrupted the vertical relationship between God and man, bringing enmity where there was once harmony. Not only was man's relationship with God severed because of sin, but, but sin also brings on the wrath of a holy God. God's holiness is demonstrated by his separation from man because of that sin. And God's justice is demonstrated by his righteous wrath against that sin. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 5, 6 says, we're told that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sin separates us from God and brings about his holy wrath. 
The severity of sin can also be seen in the corruption of our our horizontal relationships. Adam was quick to blame Eve for his eating of the fruit, and she was quick to deflect that blame and, and say the serpent deceived her. In Genesis 3.16, God told Eve that her desire shall be for her husband, but that the husband would rule over her. That means that her desire would be to control her husband, but it was going to be the husband that would rule over her. Because of sin, man and woman face struggles in their own relationship. Pastor John had mentioned this last week. Most of the problems that we face in marriages are because of sin and because of a lack of repentance and because of a lack of forgiveness. This has been the reality of human relationships since the fall of Adam. Not only was the marriage relationship corrupted, but but the relationship between man and, and fellow man was corrupted. Adam and Eve's first offspring, Cain, murdered his own brother, Abel. The severity of sin can also be seen in the reward for sin. Not only did sin corrupt both our vertical and horizontal relationships, but sin also ushered in death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Let's quickly consider three forms of death that, that were ushered in by sin. First, their spiritual death. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, by God's grace, they did not physically die at that time. Adam lived to the age of 930 years. Even so, upon eating the forbidden fruit, the the spiritual death was immediate. There was a separation from God. This is the death to which Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a walking death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Spiritual death is the state of of being separated from God. Uh, You might have an exchange of oxygen in your lungs There might be blood pumping through your veins, but you are walking around as the walking dead, spiritually speaking. This is the reality of mankind. Paul was reminding the Ephesians that as a result of Adam's sin, all of mankind are born spiritually dead. This spiritual deadness renders man incapable of seeking after God, apart from the work of God regenerating his heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Man will remain spiritually dead until the Holy Spirit of God breathes life into him and makes him a new creation in Christ. Secondly, sin ushered in physical death. Before any human died physically, animal death first occurred in the garden when God killed an animal and use that skin to provide covering for the man and the woman. Then the first human died when Cain murdered his brother. From that time forward, physical death has been the reality for all of mankind. And it seems like that was a point of emphasis for Moses when he was writing the account of of Moses and his descendants. If you look at uh, Genesis 5, uh, just note the fact that each time that a man is mentioned and his offspring, Moses ends that with, and he died those three words, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over again. The point of emphasis is that death reigned in mankind. Physical death awaits each and every one of us. While that might not be the most uplifting subject, while that might be, not be the, the, the happy message you were hoping to hear this morning, it is the truth of Scripture's. 
death awaits each and every one of us. To, to try to set that aside, to try to ignore that that's not the case would simply be folly, and it wouldn't remove that reality. Lastly, the Bible teaches that sin ushered in eternal death. Those who die physically, uh, who have not been reborn spiritually, will die eternally. This is what John refers to as the second death in Revelation chapter 20. This is a state of eternal punishment for sins and separation from God's presence and complete separation from His grace. Only those who repent of sin and believe in Jesus will escape eternal death. Now, the greatest evidence of the severity of sin is the price that was paid to redeem us from sin. Turn back to 1 John chapter 3. We looked at that uh, at the beginning here. Let's look again. 1 John chapter 3. We start in verse 4. Let's, let's start at verse 5 this time. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, You know that He appeared in order to take, our, take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in sin keeps on, or no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little, ch- little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever pra- makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Uh, And being born in the likeness of men, he became humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did this in order to take away sins. The Word becoming flesh And dwelling among us is the clearest evidence of the severity of sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy sin. Well, in all of this, we get a small taste of of the severity of sin. Sin is a serious problem. You wouldn't know that by looking in the culture around us. Sin is often just neglected, or if anything, it's the subject of of jokes and, and movies and TV shows. But Paul didn't allow the Ephesians to conclude that apart from Christ that they were, were basically good, that there was not a problem with sin. No, he was reminding them that because of Adam's sin, because of the sin in which they once walked, they were spiritually dead and, and they were in need of salvation. Let's press on. Let's look at the pers- uh, pervasiveness of sin. Point number two, the pervasiveness of sin. Looking back at Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is painting a picture of just complete darkness here. Uh, When Paul wrote to the Colossians, Uh, He said that God, in Christ, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's this dominion of darkness that Paul is painting here in Ephesians 2, 1-3. Every component of man, mind, body, soul, 
It's all polluted by sin. That's what theologians refer to as total depravity. Now, this doctrine does not say that man is as bad as man could be, that, uh, that in, in his depravity that it renders him incapable of doing some sort of good works. No, it, the truth that Paul describes here is that sin is, is, is totally pervasive. There, there is not any aspect of life, the life in which we live, that is not infected and polluted and corrupted by sin. That's the total depravity of sin. It corrupts every aspect of life. First, Paul points to the sinfulness of the world system. Before they knew Christ, the Ephesians were dead in their sins and the trespasses in which they once walked, following the course of this world. You see that in verse 2. The Ephesians lived in a culture that was really marked by paganism, by idolatry. Uh, it was completely vile. They had this temple of Artemis. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and it was a place where temple prostitution was, was the name of the game. It, it was just the, the reality of Ephesus. Craftsmen made a living by, by making and selling sensual images of this false goddess. The culture in which these Ephesians, uh, Ephesian believers lived was consumed with all things sensual. Uh, and the unbelieving Ephesians uh, were hostile toward the God of the Bible and toward anyone who believed in Him. Next, Paul points to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here, Paul is calling out the, the prince of darkness, uh, Satan himself. At three different points in, in John's gospel, he referred to Satan as the god or as the, uh, the ruler of this world, as the ruler of this world. Then in 2 Corinthians 4.14, Paul calls him the god of this world, small g, god of this world. He is a defeated foe. God has highly exalted Christ and put all things under his feet, including Satan. At the present, however, we do not see everything in submission to him. At present, we see those who are enslaved to sin, uh, the sons of disobedience. Uh, they're under the rule of Satan. They are slaves to Satan. They are slaves to sin. And Paul said that we all lived among them. We'll hit that on that in a couple of minutes, but it's a really important point to make that so were we. We were just like that. I'll quickly make note of the fact that many people out there will reject God uh, out of a desire for self-autonomy. Uh, they, they don't want to put themselves under God's rule. They don't want to submit to God, thinking that if they reject God, then they themselves can be rulers of their own lives, that they are large and in charge. The terrible irony of this is that that's not the case. Uh, they are not in control of themselves, but the prince of the power of the air is at work in them as sons of disobedience. Self-autonomy is a complete delusion. It doesn't exist. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There is no such thing as being spiritually unaffiliated. You either submit yourself fully to the God of all creation or you work as a son of disobedience and you're under the rule of Satan himself. After pointing out the pervasiveness of sin in the world system, which is under the control of the prince of the power of the air, Paul then calls out the flesh. That's in verse 3. He said that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. And he wraps up that thought by saying we were by nature children of wrath. Every aspect of man is polluted by sin. 
No part escapes. This includes the physical, it includes the spiritual. Body and soul are corrupted by sin. The body decays. And on the way to the grave, it's used as an instrument to indulge in sinful activity. So too the soul or or the heart of man. Thoughts, desires, affections. Apart from Christ, they are all polluted by sin. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And such were we. Jeremiah 17.9, a very familiar verse for many of us, says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen to Paul's description of the unbelievers there in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Did you catch that? That their minds are futile. Uh, Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God. That means they are spiritually dead. They don't have the life of God in them. They are ignorant Their hearts are hardened. Every aspect has been corrupted by sin. This is a description of the pervasiveness of sin. This is the condition of man apart from Christ. This is total depravity. It's exactly what Paul was describing in these three verses in Ephesians. Well, thus far we've looked at the severity of sin. We've looked at the pervasiveness of sin. Now we've come to that elusive third and final point in our sermon outline which is the universality of sin. The universality of sin. We see this described in two places in our text, and both of them in verse 3, which says, And among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The words Paul used here are, they're all-encompassing. Uh, Writing to the believers in Ephesus, Paul reminded them that they all once lived in the passions of their flesh. But he also included himself in that. And and also every believer in Christ, that, that we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And then he went on to say that they're very, by their very nature, they were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you were a human being and that's the vast majority of you, it looks like. If you are, if you are a human, you are in this boat. Yeah. This includes every human who has ever lived on the face of the planet with the exception of Jesus Christ who did not have a sin nature. But the rest of mankind did and does have a sin nature as long as they are separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Sin is severe. Uh, sin is pervasive. Sin is universal. God has only one standard for all of mankind. 
perfect holiness. He said to be holy as He is holy. And none of us have ever been able to attain that level of perfection. And John MacArthur explains it like this. He says, it's because of that perfect standard of holiness that men apart from God cannot be anything but sinful. Because he is separated from God, he cannot do anything but fall short of God's standard. No matter how much good he does or, or attempts to do, the standard of never doing or never having done any evil at all is unattainable. Kind of picture it this way. Think of yourself standing on, on the bank of a river, and, and there's a, a wide diversity of people standing on your left and on your right, and in front of you is a very big river. And when I say big, I mean it's, it's like a mile to the other side, okay? And the goal is to jump from the bank that you're on all the way over to the other bank, okay? And so you've got some elderly folks, you've got some small kids, and, and they jump maybe a couple of feet, you know, that's pretty good, and, but they're in the river. Uh, then you've got the young adults, you know, maybe all the way up to late 40s or something like that. You know, they're able to jump at least twice as far, um, but, you know, they're in, in the w- river as well. And then you've got some athletes. And if you can even try to imagine, they can jump even further than those that are in their late 40s, um, but they also end up in the river. Uh, they might have some varying degree of success when compared to one another, but as far as achieving the goal of, of reaching the other side, every one of them is an equal failure. They've all equally failed. So too, throughout human, human history, there have been people who have had varying degrees of success in doing good and, and avoiding evil, uh, but when it comes to meeting God's standard of sinless perfection, we are all equal failures. We're all in that river, every one of us, all of mankind. Isaiah 53, the prophet says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In the first three chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul masterfully lays out this case against mankind. In quoting from the Psalms, he says, no one is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He would go on to write that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why a pious and religious man like Saul of Tarsus would have to be born again just as much as the criminal who was crucified right next to Christ. This is why young men and young women who faithfully come to church on Friday nights and go to Awana and memorize verses and dive in. This is why they equally need salvation as those young men and young ladies who would never darken the doors of our church or any other church for that matter. They're equally in need of salvation. This is why kind and loving stay-at-home moms and hardworking and faithful dads are in the same boat, you know, spiritually speaking, as the most vile and violent of all criminals. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. So what do we do with all this sin talk? We've seen that the severity of sin, we've seen the pervasiveness of sin, seen the universality of sin. Why do we have to spend so much time thinking about sin? And J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. 
The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. The question that bears to ask is, what do you do about your sin? If Paul were to be describing your condition like he was here to the Ephesians, would he be using the past tense or would he be using the present tense? Are you dead or were you dead? Are you walking in sin or were you walking in sin? Are you a child of wrath or were you a child of wrath? Apart from Jesus Christ, you remain in the present tense. And God's wrath remains on you. But God is rich in mercy. Even while you're dead in your trespasses, He can and will make you alive together with Christ Jesus. It starts with the right understanding and repentance of your sin, along with placing your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, which teaches us the reality of sin. It teaches us the severity of sin. Uh, Lord, it's not something that we can take lightly. It's not something that we can disregard. It's not something that we can set aside in, in hopes of just feeling better about ourselves, Lord. That's not an option that you've left us because of what you've revealed to us in your word. Father, pray that you would give us all a right understanding of our sin. Lord, take away self-delusion that teaches us that we are not as bad as others. Help us to see ourselves and our hopelessness apart from Christ. Lord, if there are any who haven't come to repentance and belief, I pray that even this morning, even now, Lord, you would open their eyes to their need of Christ, that you would convict them heavily of that sin. Lord, that there would be a brokenness because of that sin. And Lord, that they would turn from it and they would turn to Jesus. And Lord, for those who, whom you have saved by your grace through faith in Christ, my hope is that none are walking in sin. That that would be a description of their past and, and not their present. Lord, the truth is we, even those who are saved, still sin. I pray that you would give us such a hatred of sin and help us to understand the, the price that was paid for it. Help us not to trample on the blood of Christ by continuing to willfully sin against you. Father, do a work in our hearts. Make us more like Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.